I've just arrived at Temple Station, with the Thames is on one side and the street up to the Old Bailey is the other way. Now we're about midway between the London School of Economics and Political Science and King's College London, and we're going to King's College to talk to Professor Chris Hamnett about housing issues and urban studies. Chris, tell us about how you became interested in studying housing markets. Why do you think the study of housing is important to social scientists? I started off perhaps 15, 16 years ago looking at a very specific aspect of the housing market and my interests have changed over time. I really got into looking at the housing market in the late 1970s and I was interested then in what was termed the flat breakup market in London which was the sale by large institutional landlords of large purpose-built blocks of flats to specialist property dealers and that process played a really huge role in transforming the tenure structure of central London at that stage from private renting to owner occupation. I then went on to look at the flat conversion market. That was another process which was really transforming the the centre of of London. In the late 1980s and in the early 90s, I got interested in housing market transformations as a whole and the, the whole growth of home ownership in Britain, uh, the rise and then subsequent decline of the council sector. One other major interest in the mid-80s onwards was the whole question of housing inheritance and wealth because I began to be aware with the growth of home ownership that there were lots of relatively elderly homeowners, that house prices were rising and that it appeared that a substantial number of people in Britain were going to inherit house property or the proceeds of house property at some stage in their lives. So that was another major research issue. Were there any particular texts or established works that you sought to challenge or to explore in more detail? I think probably the the most important theoretical work on the home ownership market in Britain has that been done by Peter Saunders from the late 1970s onwards. And Saunders is a sociologist, and his views have proved really very controversial, particularly for sociologists. Basically, what he asserted in the late 1970s was that home ownership offered the basis for domestic property accumulation for capital gains for profits if you like and that this differentiated homeowners from tenants and that it was this profit making potential of home ownership which constituted a new social cleavage which in his view also had quite major political ramifications in that it was quite likely that homeowners would behave in ways very different from those of tenants. Now he subsequently went on to make an even more radical claim in the early 80s that housing tenure was possibly the most important social cleavage and and in fact was more important than social class. Well you can imagine at this stage a lot of the sociologists began to get themselves in a bit of a tiz and that's really where I began to get interested in home ownership and particularly the question of 
the relationship between gains and social class. Who gains? How much do they gain? Is class an important determinant of gains or is it an irrelevant or incidental one? About your own investigation into the way that people act in housing markets, how did you go about gathering the evidence? Oh, that's a, that's a tricky question. One of the key difficulties in almost any area of social investigation is if you start with individuals, you're likely to fall into a methodological individualist approach, which is, in a way, assuming that you can look at the behaviour of the whole system simply from the aggregate of large numbers of individuals. It's a problematic approach because you've also got to realise that the behaviour of any system is determined in large part by a set of underlying policies and those policies could well be government policies towards different tenures the policies of building societies or other mortgage lenders all of which are going to have a major effect in shaping the behavior of individual actors in the housing market. So if we go back to the flat breakup market, there may well have been a number of tenants who up until the mid-1960s would have wished to have bought their flats, but their landlords weren't selling, so they couldn't buy them. So you could ask as many questions as you like, do you wish to buy your flat, yes, no? And the outcome was the same, that there were remaining rental tenants as long as they stayed there. However, as soon as their landlords changed their behaviour and decided that they wanted to sell the blocks to increase the sales of individual units, then the context within which individual behaviours changes quite dramatically. You are obviously concerned with the general patterns in social life, such as class position, property ownership and age differences. Could you tell us something about how you defined these and other factors that you consider to be important? Oh, that's <laughs> that's another tough question. Age is is really very unproblematic, and you can you can get age data out of any of the official government publications, such as General Household Survey. Income is much more of a a problem, and in general, most social scientists would say that if you're collecting in income data from individual respondents in an interview that that's generally something you come to very near the end of the interview you don't start off with the question tell me how much do you earn because that's probably the end of the interview but the real tricky issue is the one of defining and operationalizing social class i mean very frequently if i'm using official statistics then i use the definitions given by the office of national statistics and they have a standard and official social class categorization and a socioeconomic categorization but of course that's been questioned by many many people as to its validity and it certainly doesn't have any underlying strong theoretical Validity. Then, of course, if you want to look what the market researchers do, they use something called social grade, which is A, B, C1, C2, D, E. Then you have the problem of trying to translate that into meaningful class categories. I think the key thing at the end of the day is you ought to have a definition which is hopefully theoretically based but is also operationally feasible.
Now, would you say that one of these factors or variables was the cause of the others? For instance, do class differences or perhaps age differences help to explain the different patterns in property ownership? Again, that's a very difficult question. If one takes, for example, uh, the phenomenon of, of housing inheritance, nationally speaking, about 12% of households have inherited house property or the proceeds at some stage in their lives. When you look at it in terms of social class categories, professionals and managers, maybe 18% of those have inherited house property. Perhaps 12, 15% of other non-manual workers, 8% of skilled manual workers, 4% of the semi-skilled, 2% of the unskilled. Now, you can ask the question, why is it that there are these class differentials? The explanation is very much to do with patterns of intergenerational class stability. So when you look at the class characteristics of beneficiaries today, what you're actually doing when you look at those differentials is explaining them in terms of the class characteristics of their parents. And that's the real explanatory variable in, in that case. When people buy their homes for the first time, it's often described as their first step on the housing ladder. Now, this idea of the housing ladder was a very powerful metaphor in the 1980s, in social science as well as in everyday life. Now, is it still helpful to think of the housing market in these terms today? I think it is, although there's a number of, of very good housing researchers, Ray Forrest, Alan Murray, Peter Williams, who have criticised the notion of the housing ladder. My research suggests that there is a housing ladder, or to be more accurate, that there are a number of housing ladders in the southeast. Indeed, in particular housing markets, each housing market seems to have its own ladder. In general, through people's housing careers, it seems that people start in something relatively small and relatively cheap and end up in something relatively larger and more expensive. To that extent, there is a housing ladder. The reason why there are different ladders in different housing markets is that the nature of the housing stock varies enormously. So the structure of housing markets differs across the country, and also so do the, the characteristics of their residents. So depending on the geography, that you're going to find quite marked differences in the structure of the ladder. Some ladders will be more expensive, some will be fatter than others, some shorter, some longer, etc., who would you say is the intended audience for your work? Again, it depends on the work in question. The intriguing thing about the work I did on the flat breakup market is my motivation was wholly academic. Um, my interest was theoretical and empirical. I was not concerned with policy issues. But when that work had been done, the government began to pick up a lot of complaints from tenants and long leaseholders about the problems they were having with service charges, landlord abuses, etc. And the government decided to set up a committee of inquiry to look into this, and they were looking round for somebody who'd done research on the issue. And basically, I was the only person in Britain, so I got made research director of the committee, and subsequently we produced a set of recommendations which the government accepted 
in fact, they received all party support. And just before the Conservatives dissolved Parliament in 1987, all parties got together to push through the Landlord and Tenant Act 1987 in two days, which I believe is a record. So you can start off doing theoretical research, which can have very marked policy implications. What you can find, and I've found this many times, that your work can hit audiences that you don't necessarily anticipate. So I've done quite a lot of work on housing inheritance, and lo and behold, this gets picked up by the papers, and we'd sent round a questionnaire. Somebody had complained about this uh, to their local newspaper, and before long I found that myself the recipient of uh, some long, heavy-breathing telephone calls from the people Possibly it was the news of the world. I think it was the news of the world. And the following Sunday I found that I was emblazoned under the banner headline Social Science Snoopers. So you never quite know what's going to happen. What about pressure groups and those sorts of organisations? In general, you've got to look at the nature of the pressure group. If one was looking, for example, at shelter, they might be wanting work on a, a particular issue it might be homelessness, it might be problems of affordability, it might be the problems generated by councils handing over their stock to housing associations. And I think you're guided to a large extent by your interests. If your interests are very much towards the policy edge, then I think you're much more likely to go out to meet organisations like that and to do work for them. Now, in your research, you seem to want to think about the big picture, about general trends and patterns. Now, does this help you to predict what's going to happen in the future? The answer to that is is yes and no. There are certain things where you can be much more certain than others. For example, at the moment, I'm trying to get a picture of what's going to happen to the home ownership market in the early years of the next century. Is it going to be depressed? Are we going to have another boom? Well, one of the things which is going to determine that, in part, is the the, the, the number of new buyers coming into the, into the market. And that, in turn, is going to be dependent upon the age structure of the population at any given time. And what you can do is go back to the birth figures... And by looking at how many people were born last year or the year before, you can make a a very, very good uh, estimate of exactly how many people will be entering the housing market in the year 2025-2030. So those sorts of questions where, in a sense, the, the people are already in place are really very straightforward. But with lots of other issues, it's going to be dependent, for example, on government policy. And that you can never predict with any accuracy whatsoever. I mean, one knew when Margaret Thatcher took power in 1979 that she and indeed the Conservative Party in general were very strongly pro-home ownership. Perhaps what nobody fully appreciated is precisely how strongly pro 
home ownership the Conservatives would turn out to be with the introduction of the right to buy, etc. And of course, this goes back to your question about predictability. The Conservatives, I think, worked on the implicit model that uh, homeowners are more likely to vote Conservative because they have a stake in the system. They don't want to rock the boat. So I think one of the things that always drove Mrs Thatcher, and indeed she stated this on a number of occasions, is that if we can increase the number and the proportion of homeowners in Britain, we'll be well on our way to creating what she termed a a property-owning democracy, a popular capitalism. And they thought that if they did that, then the electorate would keep voting in Conservative governments. Well, of course, what happened in the late 1980s, we had a big housing boom, and then a five-year slump. Between one and two million people went into what's termed negative equity. In other words, the value of their home, were they to sell it, was less than the outstanding mortgage on it. And about 430,000 people in the 1990s alone, have had their house repossessed. Well, not surprisingly, many people who bought into the Thatcherite owner-occupied dream in the late 1980s found that it wasn't a dream any longer, it was a nightmare. And not surprisingly, the swing against Conservatives was greatest in London and the South East and in the other region of Britain. And there are many areas around London, Luton, Basildon, etc., which the Conservatives had always seen as the the bastions of the C1 and C2s, the working-class Conservative support. And research seems to be indicating that they turned very, very strongly against the Conservatives. So the very thing which they had sought to develop, in a sense, turned against them. They were hoist with their own petard, effectively. And that sort of thing you can't really predict at all.